Welcome to the Experts Only podcast, sponsored by Clean Capital, where we explore the intersection of energy, innovation and finance. Our host is Clean Capital's co-founder and former Federal Chief Sustainability Officer, John Powers. Learn how Clean Capital is revolutionising clean energy finance and find more episodes at cleancapital.com, iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Welcome to Clean Capital's Experts Only Podcast. I'm your host, John Powers. We've got a great interview today with Vote Solar's Adam Browning. Adam spent over 15 years leading Vote Solar, earning him the title across the industry as the Michael Jordan of solar policy. You're in for a really interesting conversation as we explore not only what Vote Solar's role is in terms of the solar marketplace, but where these fights are today. You know, we're seeing so much happening at the federal level on pushback around the solar trade case or or sector repair space. And the real fight that many of us should be focused on is what's happening at the state level, whether it be net metering in Nevada, fights in Florida, new policies in Pennsylvania and Illinois, stuff that we need to be tracking to move into the next market. Adam and I will be talking a lot about that. And, you know, I think if there's any takeaway that I learned from him, it's it's important for the states that are leading today just to get bolder and to hit on the targets that they're achieving. I mean, California has just announced recently they're going to hit their targets early. You know, it's because of the advocacy at those levels. So I think you'll learn a lot from this conversation. And let's get started. Adam, thank you so much for joining us at, on our Experts Only podcast. Oh, I am excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. You know, I want to start talking a little bit about your personal story in the space. You've had such a diverse background growing up in Miami, joining the Peace Corps, even spending time in a federal agency. So tell me a little bit about your journey. How did you end up, first of all, how did you end up joining the Peace Corps? Ah, that's an easy one. Going through college, I never had a real exact plan for what the next steps were and the idea of spending a bunch of time living in a simpler place in time, middle of nowhere, Africa, just seemed like the funnest, most exciting thing that anyone could ever want to do. And it turns out I was right. That's great. What are some of the things you worked on when you were on the ground there? Oh, I was in a little country called Guinea-Bissau in West Africa, right uh, just south of Senegal, and the first group of volunteers doing some agriculture work. We were focused on rice growing and Tell you what, it was first year, it was really just about figuring out how to live. Right. People were wonderful. The second year was really about trying to get some projects done. But it was the most challenging experience that I ever had to that point and probably ever will, being a father notwithstanding. Right. And uh, I, if it's something that appeals to you, I recommend it to anybody at any point in their lives. What are some of the lessons you took away from being working on the ground there? Honestly, a lot of lessons that transfer over to work today. One is that take the time to really get to know the world that you're living in. Do not expect results right away. Change can, when it happens, can go quite slow. There are a lot of reasons for the status quo. And you should really, when we hire somebody, I first sit down and let them know that I really want them to master their area and their subject matter and not think that they need to like blow things up and change things immediately. And I think, so that was one big lesson. Let's see, the other, you know, really enjoying what you do is critically important. It's all relationships. The more time you spend getting to know people and building your relationships and having joy in that, the better off you'll be. Yeah, absolutely. So coming out of that, how did you end up joining the EPA? 
when I left, that was back in 94, end of 94. The economy was not good, and it turned out that I actually I just took to goodwill the, the first sports coat that I bought after coming back from Peace Corps that I went around to local restaurants trying to find a busboy job and couldn't find work at all. Returning Peace Corps volunteers have special hiring status with the federal government. I looked into that, and EPA was a local agency that had always been an environmentalist, and I really focused on getting a job there simply because I this looked like I had a an easier in with my Peace Corps service. And so that was where I ended up. Were you working on energy stuff at EPA, or what was your focus there? You know, my first effort with EPA was a lead-based paint program specifically focused on tribes, which have sort of unique standing vis-a-vis the federal government. So this was a grant program with the tribes in Region 9 covering Arizona and Nevada, Hawaii, and California. That was a really interesting program. I transitioned after a while into the Toxics Release Inventory Program. That ended up being fascinating work, ended up doing a lot of enforcement-related work, and then a lot of work with gold mines in Nevada, where I ended up. So when you went from, were you out in California then? Yeah, Region 9 in the San Francisco office out in California. Yep. Excellent. And so what led from playing in the gold mines of Nevada to, you know, in 2002, launching Vote Solar? And before getting to the Vote Solar piece, like, why did you want to get into the advocacy piece after having been sort of on the service side and then, you know, the public service side? Sure. You know, again, it wasn't a uh, plan that I had from the start that I was just following out a path to a goal that I had. Right. It's more going from one interesting thing to the other. And so working for the EPA, for the federal government, great introduction to understanding how environmental protection and our laws that our country have are applied and how it all works. There are some things to be left to be desired by working for the federal government. It's a large bureaucracy. Innovation can be a little hard to come by, and I've always enjoyed being my own boss. So it wasn't necessarily that I I had a plan, but what ended up happening was I saw another opportunity and jumped on it. And that specifically was an old college roommate, David Hochschild, not actually a roommate. He was a a hallmate was working for the mayor, Willie Brown, in San Francisco. And he had an idea to try to put solar on city-owned buildings, do energy efficiency. Uh, that ended up becoming a ballot initiative. And I'd never really been involved in a political process before. Right. I found it exhilarating. We had really kind of captured the imagination of a lot of people in the city. We had hundreds, if not thousands, of volunteers that were really excited about this idea of a transition to renewable energy. So for me personally, looking, doing a lot of enforcement with the EPA, finding people for what's coming out of their smokestacks, this whole idea of like, we don't even need control equipment. There's no enforcement necessary. We're just going to skip the whole smokestack route altogether was really, it had visceral appeal of going to a cheaper, cleaner, faster, better way of producing energy. Uh, Of course, solar at that point wasn't cheaper, but we had a vision for it. Through economies of scale, you could bring down the costs. And that was the whole idea behind the San Francisco solar bond, Proposition B in 2001. Interesting. I have a, a similar path. When I left the military, I had never done anything political in my life and came home and had a friend who had been working on the 
in Kerry's presidential race because she knew I was a an Iraq vet, had me go out to Iowa to campaign, and for the first time was was on the ground talking to folks about my experiences, and you know just led me in a completely different path in life. And I, you know, the more later on when I sat in, in a federal seat, you know, and worked across the agencies on their their energy footprint, you know, it became really apparent to me how important those voices are the voices of folks that were actually working in these issues are and then having them come and advocate for their positions you know it's something that the people sitting in these these seats especially here in Washington but I'd say equally in Sacramento or in Albany I'm from New York originally they're experts as far as they can go but they don't the real voices they need are the ones that are out there doing the work and so that kind of advocacy can be game changing obviously it's probably what what you you started vote solar so talk a little bit about transitioning from that ballot initiative into co-founding Vote Solar in 2002. Yeah, well, let me just riff on your story as well. What I have found, and it sounds like you as well, like people really want to be a part of something bigger than themselves. They genuinely are interested in seeing change. The difficulty is trying to provide the right vessel, the right vehicle, the right space where you can actually get involved and make something happen. And that's what I feel is where solar and Part of the foundational premise of Vote Solar comes in. So after we passed that ballot initiative, which is, again, just to do solar and energy efficiency on city-owned buildings and have the energy savings sort of pay for those capital retrofits, and we had calls from cities around the country. We had New York Times calling, and it quickly became apparent that there was a hunger for this kind of change out there. That led us to decide to quit our jobs and start a new nonprofit focused on replicating those city-led initiatives best we could. We quickly found out that the real, while city-led initiatives were good in and of themselves, where the real rules were made was at state-level policies. You had to have the right state-level enabling infrastructure to allow for a city or a person to take advantage of the one of the real strengths of solar, which is that you don't have to wait for your utility to do the right thing. You can take it upon yourself to invest in this emission-free technology and to fundamentally participate in democracy and environmental decision-making. But in order to allow that to happen, you have to have the right regulatory infrastructure in order to enable people to choose to make their own power through solar energy, whether you're a person or whether you're a city. So we changed the orientation and the focus of the organization to state-level policies. And very focused in California in the beginning, right? I mean, you guys were really laying the groundwork for what ended up rolling across the country throughout the rest of the decade. Exactly. So there was when we got our start, there was a cap on net metering in California at 0.1% of total demand. You know, everyone at the utility side saying, you know, to expand that would risk uh, grid failure and a business model collapse. So I didn't know it at the time, but the next 15 years of my life would really be defined by incrementally expanding that cap to where we, we don't have one right now in California at all. It's funny to hear those are the arguments, the counter arguments, right? It's almost the same. Every time they want to shift, it's the same argument they're making today. Exactly. The arguments are different now, only slightly. But right. yeah, we knocked down some of those impossible barriers a, a long time ago or had to knock on them. 
But yeah, for many years, Vote Solar was two people, then three people, then four people. And we the first big focus was in California on the California Solar Initiative, a big market-based incentive program that provided incentives for rooftop solar. Back then, solar was nine, ten bucks a watt. And doing unincentivized solar seemed wasn't really possible in that market. So the whole idea was to establish this incentive program that would wean itself, that would lead to an end at which point it wasn't necessary anymore and would go away. And I think this is one of these wonderful examples that you don't see all that often of policy living up to its premise to a T to deliver exactly what it set out to do and ride off into the sunset. So we hold up that as evidence of a very successful program. You know, it really did lay the foundation, right? When the next step started to look nationally, what are you going to do to drive down the cost of power or cost of these panels? You've got efforts like, I think, President Bush's Energy Policy Act that set the investment tax credit in place. That was around 2005. Didn't really get going in the market until 2007, maybe eight, until we started seeing money really flow there. But all the state-level foundational work that you did, married to the federal stuff, started a pretty critical set of chain reactions, right, where policy lined up with with markets. And now you've got, you know, I was doing some homework before we were doing interviews, and I was looking just to even find the amount of installed solar in 2002. And that it's really hard data to find because there wasn't a whole lot out there, right? And you flash forward now, we're at the end of 2016, the U.S. had 40 gigawatts of installed PV, almost double the capacity from the previous year. In 2016, 39% of all new electricity generation in the country came from solar, ahead of even natural gas. And we're seeing employment numbers of this industry take off, where now we've gone from a, a nascent alternative energy to what's really mainstream. And what I really want to talk about now is looking ahead. We're at a, a unique time in the federal space, and then dive into the state conversation more deeply with you. But Starting with the federal space, you know, post the Obama administration, you know, if you followed Energy Policy Act into the certain policies that came out of the Obama administration to help drive down the cost of things like SunShot to drive down the cost of the actual equipment. Now we're at a place where the market is moving. Installations are happening at record numbers, but we're facing two dramatic sort of federal lines of attack, right? One is the solar trade case, which I want to talk a little bit about, and of course, Secretary Perry's recent push to to really subsidize the coal industry. So from as you're seeing this happen, right, how are you viewing sort of those plays and how they're going to affect us going forward? Sure. Yeah. As an organization, our focus has always been focused on state level policy. And we've let the federal policy in the very good hands of SIA provided grassroots support for federal initiatives around the tax credit and the like. But our mantra has always been that the state-level policy is where the most important rules of the road are set. And so done a ton of RPSs and net metering and financing programs and tax policy around the country since then. So after Trump was elected, it became really clear that we're going to make progress in those times, that state-level policy was really where it's at. The big states needed to go bigger. We needed to get good wins in some of the harder states to do, and we needed to play defense everywhere. 
I have to say, the I have been surprised. It came as a surprise just the magnitude of the federal resistance that we've seen so far. Did not anticipate this trade case, which, as you right. know, could double the price of modules potentially. And ironically, yeah. you're seeing conservatives like Sean Hannity coming out against it, right? And it supporting, I think, the SIA or the solar position on it, which is interesting. It is quite interesting and love to see that. At the same time, you look at a, you know, coming out of uh, Perry's DOE, a proposal to fundamentally blow up competitive energy markets to provide subsidies for out-of-the-money coal and nuke plants and to the detriment of renewables and natural gas. You know, did not and this is something that is in direct contradiction with the rhetoric coming out of a party that is nominally used to competitive markets or uh, professes to be supportive of such. So really did not expect the just the radical nature of the proposals to just make everybody pay more to subsidize polluting coal. Right. And again, destroy competitive markets in the pursuit of such. So that is definitely something that we all need to be have our eye on and fight as hard as we can for. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting if you look back when the, this conversation started, when Perry landed there and, you know, there's certain folks within DOE who are politicized and trying to move this baseload agenda. And, you know, this summer you and I did a joint op-ed pushing back on the was expected to be the grid report that I think they were hoping was going to empower them to go and really go after things like state RPSs and, and net metering. And what it came out to show was, oh, no, actually, renewables are doing really well in the grid. And, you know, there's, there's true, resi- you know, as we argued, there's real resilience in renewables. And then they seemed like, oh, since that didn't work like they had planned, they decided to start going after FERC rules to try to provide subsidies of coal. And then you've got major players like PJM and others coming out saying, wait a minute, don't distort the market like this, which is really interesting counterattack that I don't I don't think I even saw coming where you saw, you know, some of the, the major players who usually are relatively quiet on this kind of stuff saying, whoa, hold your horses. Let's uh, let's let the market play here. Uh, so 100 percent in agreement. In fact, when it was first floated, it didn't even seem like something that we would need to provide too much advocacy focus on. It was too crazy, so far out of the mainstream, and so contradictory to things that are delivering great benefits to consumers through competitive markets that it was just implausible that it would actually go forward. So when you see some of the FERC commissioners providing supportive statements to elements of it, you really start to worry. Like this is something, again, that is just should be treated as just beyond the pale. And it is now really potentially being internalized. So there's a lot more danger there. And making interesting bedfellows with folks like the solar industry and the natural gas industry coming together on on pushback. So let's transition out of the federal space. I think what really, you know, I think what those fights are going to happen, and we've got to all play an active role in, in pushing back on them. But it also really shines a light on the importance of focusing on state-level solutions. There's been a lot of activity in 2016 and, of course, here in 2017 that are affecting the space. You guys have been very active, you know, everything from the recent elections here in Virginia and in New Jersey, what those mean for clean energy, but also some of the fights that you've been leading in Nevada and Florida. Can you talk a little bit about what Vote Solar is doing there? 
Sure. So, yeah, I do think it's a case of a where the big leading states need to get bolder and go farther. So, let's just again start with California real quickly. There was a the California Public Utilities Commission just released a report saying that this state could meet its 50% RPS, is on track to meet 50% RPS 10 years early by 2020, so just a few years out, which really sets the bar for what is possible around the country. This past year, I think, has been a really dynamic showcase of like what really is possible at the state level. Let's begin with Nevada, where back almost two years ago now, you had solar's worst loss ever. Right. Absolutely the crushing of net metering. And in the intervening 16 months, you had a ton of advocacy work that went into that state. We had people full-time working on bringing back solar to Nevada. We had lawsuits going. We had regulatory strategy, legislative strategy. The sum result of a lot of partners also working on this is that you had the most successful legislative session in I would say, in any state at any time. You had 11 major energy bills pass. Only nine of them were signed. The governor dropped the ball on the 40% RPS and our community solar bill. But you we brought back full retail, you know, uh, net metering. The rooftop solar market is moving forward. And I would say that this was a real example of, you know, where the enemies of progress had a pretty pyrrhic victory. So, at the same time, you had a ballot initiative in Nevada passed by a record 73% to essentially blow up Nevada Energy and the IOUs and have a, a competitive market. It has to pass twice, so it hasn't yet happened, but nonetheless, you saw the will of the voters. And we've got polling to show that after the big solar loss, where solar became a you know, front-page issue for months, it affected electoral politics across the board. And you had in the, the race to succeed uh, Senator Harry Reid, one candidate taken a pro-solar position and one taken an anti-solar position. And the, we have polling to show that people held that solar view against Joe Heck and uh, rewarded Carolyn Cortez Masto, now the senator, accordingly. So this is a issue where, you know, a place where you've seen really solar flex its electoral muscles. You look across the country and super majorities want to see this transition to renewable energy. Here's a place where you actually saw that play out at the polls. Florida is another place where we saw some really helpful activity. I grew up in Miami, and so I think I'm allowed to say, like, <laughs> and nothing good ever comes out of Florida. That's hyperbole, of course, but it's just really hard to get wins in the Sunshine State. You have to go back to 2008 with Governor Chris to see where we had a huge win on net metering. But what we saw this past year worked with the Republican-dominated state legislature to put a tax abatement issue on the ballot. The ballot was on the primary last August, and it passed again by 73% of the vote. Then the legislature had to vote on it again to implement it. So three times you had twice in the legislature, one, the huge majority of the people you know, wanting to see this property tax abatement, which effectively lowers the cost of solar around 20% in the third largest, most populous state in the country. So it's really a big deal. Pass. So this is a, another example where you're seeing uh, really solar become an electoral issue, something that politicians have to pay attention to. So 
flip forward to the you know, just a few weeks ago where you saw it both in New Jersey and in Virginia, a pro-solar leaders, pro-renewable energy leaders get elected. The Virginia governor adopted a 100% renewable platform. And the New Jersey governor has some really strong renewable credentials. Those were pretty tightly contested races. But I think this is really the wave of the future where you see, in effect, in the absence of federal government leadership, and in fact, when you're looking at federal government intransigence on this subject, people really understanding that politicians really understanding that that is not where the people are at. The people right. want to see this transition. And if they want, you know, this is a vehicle to get elected. So, you know, these are deeply technical sort of regulatory issues in many cases, right? And as, as I mean, obviously, someone in the industry, we can understand that, but if, to get people active and to vote on these and to help educate them on whether it be regulatory issues, you know, you mentioned IOU earlier. If you went to Buffalo and polled, 99% of the people in Buffalo aren't going to know what an IOU is, right? So how do you educate voters? What role do folks in the industry have helping to do that? And then for listeners, how can they get up to speed and help advocate and push some of these things locally? So just want to be clear from the outset that Vote Solar is a 501c3 advocacy organization. So as an organization, we can't do electoral work. We can only do regulatory and a limited amount of legislative work. But so, you can educate. But I can certainly provide my personal opinion, which is that the politicians rarely lead. They follow. And it's incumbent upon everyone to let their local leaders know what it is that they, they want to see in terms of for their future. You can always get involved in your local state level and regulatory work through organizations like Vote Solar, where our one of the fundamental premises of what we try to do is to get a decision on an important clean energy issue teed up for a vote at a commission and then enable Vote Solar members to then be able to voice their opinion and say, look, you know, you're a public policymakers, we're the public, this is what we want to see at the state level. But when it comes to the electoral politics, it's up to individuals to contact their politicians to let them know that this is the type of policy that they want to see future leaders enact. I think the Sierra Club is doing an awesome job, as well as with Environment America, some of our good friends and partners there, on getting cities to sign up for 100% renewable energy or clean energy standards. Now, they still need state-level policies in order to live up to that goal, but it is very clear demonstration that that is where the people end up wanting to go. And you guys have resources at votesolar.org, right, for folks to get on and, and learn more? The whole idea, exactly, is please, you become a member, and then we only ask for your zip code, and that's enable both your name and your zip code. And that means that when there is an important solar issue happening at generally at the state level, we plug you in, let you know like what our campaigns are, wherever you may be, and keep you involved. Let you know when it is time to call the Public Utilities Commission or call your state senator or representative to say, you know, you're a ratepayer, you're a citizen, you're a voter, and this is the issue that is important to you. A lot of our work, we build these complex, super wonky arguments, do a lot of math to prove that solar alternative is better and intervene legalistic ways in these important regulatory cases to, again, prove by math that we're right. But you never win just because you're right. You also you know, have to align the politics with the outcome that you want to see. And that's where 
the people writ large come in. So I challenge all the listeners to go to votesolar.org, check it out. And if, you know, there's new battlegrounds in places like Pennsylvania where we can support the governor's new initiatives on community solar or, or Illinois or, or Iowa. So get involved, learn more from how you can get involved. And then, Adam, I, I really want to leave, you know, I always leave in a final question. I want to, you know, you've had such an incredible career in this space. You know, if you can sit down with yourself coming out of high school in Miami or coming out of college and heading to the Peace Corps, what advice would you give yourself? You know, I'm going to answer this two ways. I mean, on a personal level, I would tell everyone to follow their passion. Don't think in terms of like their whole career. Think in terms of what they really want to be working on now. Secondly, you know, as someone who does a lot of hiring, I would tell people the one degree that I look for is a GSD. It, the you know MAs and PhDs are awesome as far as it goes, but I also want to see that someone's got a track record of getting stuff done. And that is what my interviews are always focused on. Sure, you spent X amount of time at such a place, but what did you deliver? What did you get done? And keep that in mind. That is the most valuable thing that you can ever use in any job interview. That's great. Well, you guys are definitely getting stuff done at Vote Solar. So thanks so much for taking the time today. And we look forward to continuing to keep progress. And, you know, as things are happening, you know, be sure to come back so we can talk about where folks can get involved in these state fights. Thank you much. And you keep up the great work yourself, John. Thanks, Adam. Well, a lot to take out of that conversation with Adam Browning today. Go to votesolar.org to learn more about how you can get involved. If you're not involved at the state level, these are where the fights are happening to really ensure that the marketplace continues to grow, both for solar, but also other clean energy technologies across the board. And if I learned anything when I was in the federal government, it's those folks that are working in the industry or are passionate about the industry that could be some of the most important advocates moving ahead. So I just wanted to thank our producers, Lauren Glickman and Emily Connor, for their hard work. And as always, if you have thoughts or advice on the show, please provide them to at cleancapital.com and you can find our other episodes there and look forward to continuing the conversation.